On September 11th of 2001, Al-Qaeda sought to break the American Union, aiming at what they saw as fatal flaws in our democratic system. Two decades later, the man who led the Empire State as governor on that day of infamy dares to ask a provocative question. Did the terrorists win? Governor George E. Pataki. Thank you, Mayor Bloomberg. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far beyond our poor powers to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is, rather, for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Hello, history lovers, and welcome back to the History Author Show. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and it's really great to have you here with us on iHeartRadio. We're now number one in podcasting. Thanks to loyal listeners like yourself. By the way, a cool thing you can do is you can ask your Echo Dot, Alexa, play the latest episode of the History Author Show, and she'll do the rest for you. That way you won't miss excellent guests like the very special one we have for you today. We're going to be speaking with Governor George E. Pataki. He's going to reflect on recapturing the national unity Americans experienced after the 9-11 attacks. His book is... Beyond the Great Divide, How a Nation Became a Neighborhood, co-authored with former Florida Congressman Trey Radell. 
Governor Pataki spent 12 years at the helm of the Empire State, and he also delivered the lone speech at Ground Zero on the one-year commemoration of the attacks. As you just heard, he chose to deliver the Gettysburg Address, and he talks a lot about Lincoln today and in Beyond the Great Divide. He discusses how 2020 America, like Lincoln's, faces domestic divisions that would have seemed impossible as the rubble of the Twin Towers smoldered. The comparisons to Lincoln's time are particularly important right now because we're asking the same question. Can this nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to equality long endure? This former presidential candidate, mayor of Peekskill, New York, and three-term Republican governor of a deep blue state reflects on the American experiment our obligation not just to our fellow citizens, but to the world. As John Adams said, this constitution wasn't made for just anyone. There was a moral component. People had to take personal responsibility for what they were doing. You can learn more about binding up the nation's wounds at georgepatakicenter.com or by following our guest at Governor Pataki on Twitter. Okay, now that we've arrived back in America, shocked into solidarity, Let's join Governor George Pataki and reflect upon leaping beyond the Great Divide. We might have a hijack over here, too. Yeah, I got an aircraft six miles east of the White House. Pentagon just got hit. The war. That's what it is. Let's get it I'm joined via Skype by the 53rd Governor of New York State, George E. Pataki. He's the author of Beyond the Great Divide, How a Nation Became a Neighborhood. Governor, welcome, and thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Thank you, Dean. Nice being on with you. Governor, you've served in many state political offices. In 2016, you threw your hat in the ring, to use the phrase that we get from one of your historical idols, and mine too, Theodore Roosevelt, threw your hat in the ring for that, and it really is a ring to run for president, especially in 2016. You had a huge field. You could rest on those laurels. Instead, in a heated election year, you've chosen to become that good sport who says before the Super Bowl or before the Stanley Cup Finals, I just hope everyone plays clean, has fun, nobody gets badly injured. I'm that guy too, despite being in politics, despite being in talk radio and having worked in cable news. And I think of a friend of mine who played for Penn State in the glory years of Joe Paterno in the 90s, and his uncle happens to be NFL Hall of Famer Fred Bolitnikoff. And because of that, and because my friend's from Pennsylvania with two NFL franchises and his uncle went all over to other teams, he doesn't pick a side. He doesn't have a favorite team. And I've been to bars with him. He literally wears the referee hat just with NFL on it. (laughs) Very generic. No no team hat. And people will get mad and say, come on, you must like one team. Nobody goes to a bar just to see a good game. But he legitimately does. And I thought of that when I'm reading Beyond the Great Divide because here you're a man who's stepping out of your comfort zone to give people a message that they're not always receptive to hearing, especially in the heat of a presidential election battle. What called you to take that step, to challenge us all as your fellow Americans to look, in the words of your title, beyond the Great Divide? Well, Dean, thank you. There are basically two reasons why I wrote it. To begin with, your analogy comparing politics to sport is very accurate, and too many people, particularly in the media, treat it that way. But it's really not sport, it's life. And the decisions that 
our leaders make literally impact the lives of not just the hundreds of millions of people who live in this country, but the billions who live around the world. And these are critical decisions that shouldn't be based on choosing one side or the other, but made based on what's right for the people. And I felt the need to write that because after September 11th, that was how Americans reacted. You know, instead of coming apart because of these hideous attacks and the fact that America was subject to unthinkable terrorism, Americans came together and said, hey, we're proud of our freedom, we're proud of our country, and we're going to unite in the face of this horrible evil. And we've gone from having that sense of unity that I thought was one of the inspirational things that came out of those tragic days after September 11th to where we're the most divided in my lifetime and probably the most divided since the Civil War. And I don't think it's good for the country, and I don't think it's right for the country. I think we have so much more in common. We have so much more that we agree about. And yet there are those in the media, there are those in academia, there are those in politics who simply want to enhance that divide instead of trying to bring us together as is necessary if we're going to succeed as a country. You talk about that burden that we have, that we carry as Americans, that obligation to think of not just the long term of our country, because this is the last best hope in the words of Abraham Lincoln, but also because the world is counting on us, because as we go, the world certainly goes. As Ronald Reagan said, there's nowhere else to go. He was meeting some people who had escaped from communist Cuba back in his presidency. And somebody said in the group, how lucky we are that we forget as Americans. And this Cuban refugee said, no, you're not lucky. We were lucky. We had somewhere to escape to. And, you know, my grandparents being Greek and having escaped from the Turkish genocide, they were able to come to America. If we lose this experiment and fail to keep America, then there is nowhere to go to. People say there's no planet B. Well, even on this planet, there aren't places that you can go without this shield of American law and military might to protect these liberties, because that is not the history of mankind to have a country where you can't speak freely. We don't talk about that civic obligation anymore. And I found that's exactly what you did in Beyond the Great Divide. You reminded us of that impulse that says, hey, something small like jury duty, uh, you know, that's one of the few things government asks of us. I know if I was on trial, I would want somebody like myself to go sit, not just somebody who didn't bother to get out of jury duty. But there are other obligations that help us reach Beyond the Great Divide, not just root for laundry, as Seinfeld puts it about sport. We're all in the same league, and you don't want to see somebody get hurt. You don't want to just cheer for the blood on the ice in the Stanley Cup Game 7. That's what we seem to want today is blood on the ice. Absolutely, and, it, and it's wrong for the country. And It's funny you mentioned jury duty. One of the first things I did as governor was I changed the law because virtually everybody had an exemption. There was always an excuse that it was left to a handful of people to serve, and I changed the law saying no exemptions, period. Unless you are seriously ill, you're going to serve. And, of course, the next year I was called to jury duty while still being governor. But it was uh, <laughs> poetic justice, and it was just symbolic that we're all in this together, and we all have to serve together. And the second reason I wanted to write the book is that I read all these stories about what happened at Ground Zero and how Lower Manhattan has come to be the, the symbol of renewal that it really is. And I knew the actual story. I was there helping to write the actual story. It had never been done. So I wanted to tell that story as well. So I thank you for your kind words about it. And hopefully some people will read this and say, you know, yeah, I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative. But, you know, we have to be willing to listen to those who don't agree with us. We're going to try to beat them in the election. 
but that doesn't mean we demean them during the course of a political campaign. And you see things like Nancy Pelosi, the horrible things she says about Republicans in the House, you know, that we're our enemies. They're, it's like they're evil people. And when that becomes the norm in politics, when you don't see people in a different party who may have a different philosophy on some issues as evil and not legitimate of being hurt, then you lose the freedom. And I fear not just in politics, but on our college campuses, that is too often the case today. You mentioned all of that in Beyond the Great Divide in some detail, but with these personal anecdotes, first person, that we don't get just from somebody looking on the outside. There are so many political books right now. That seems to be the new American dream in Washington, right, is that you're going to write a book and then you're maybe going to get a consulting gig on one of the networks. Yet as we watch the towers burn, I watched personally from the window of my Hoboken apartment, even after the first tower fell and I could still see the second tower and I thought, okay, there'll just be one tower for a while. Even after having seen one tower fall, I, I couldn't conceive of the fact that they would both go down and that they would, they would be destroyed. I didn't have a show to do that day, so I wasn't in the city, fortunately. You can't just shelter in place. You happen to be in New York City that day. You had a duty to perform as a member of the government triad with Mayor Giuliani and President Bush. Describe for listeners where they'll find you on that morning of 9-11 when they pick up Beyond the Great Divide. Well, I talk about how I was in the city, which I'm usually not that morning, and it was just a beautiful morning. And my daughter called me to turn on the TV when the first tower had been hit. And I was speaking with her when I watched the second plane hit and at that point knew we were being attacked and told her I had to get to work. And I spoke with Mayor Giuliani. I called President Bush in Florida and talked to him about the need to shut down the airspace, which he had already done. And then it was the only time in my 12 years as governor where I ignored my security detail. They said, "Okay, we have a helicopter ready. We're taking you to the emergency command center in Albany. And I thought for a minute and you know, I couldn't leave New York. You know, maybe it would have been the prudent thing to be in the command center safe and with uh, tremendous communication capability. But that was a time when I felt I had to be in the city to show the people of New York that for all the horrors we were facing, we weren't going to flee. We weren't going to be afraid. And so I went first to my office and then down to lower Manhattan to help rally the forces and make the decisions. You know, everything from activating the National Guard to closing the bridges and tunnels numerous other decisions that had to be made relatively instantaneously to begin the emergency response and hopefully rescue some of those who were trapped in the rubble. It was such a chaotic time, too. I think it was the right decision. As President Bush said that day, I'm not going to let some tin horn terrorist keep me out of the White House. People want to see their leaders. They want to see you there. Yet you also have to balance that with the fact that you didn't want to be in the way. Minutes counted, seconds counted at that point. So you have to balance that. And that's the part of the book where it is very intense. You have a love of history. We've discussed that when we've met in person, TR in particular. You named your son, in fact, after Theodore Roosevelt, right? So you have a Teddy in the home. It must have been great being in the governor's mansion, knowing that he was there and all those great stories about one of T.R. Sons is sick and his other son brings up a horse in the elevator to visit and make him feel better. So much history there. And I imagine that when that hits, 9-11, you feel a little bit like Winston Churchill did when he says, I felt as if I was walking with destiny and every step I had taken up to that point was to prepare me for this moment when he's prime minister in Great Britain's darkest hour. As readers will find in Beyond the Great Divide, your instinct on 9-11 was 
to comfort and unite. And you seem to me reading the book and having watched you from New Jersey and seen your career, those were key skills at that time. What historical figures did you look to across those 99 days that Ground Zero smoldered to help you, to inspire you, to remind you that people had walked roads like this before and that you could be as they were? Oh, you know, writing the book, the historical figure that I couldn't help but think about, I don't even mention it in the book all the time, was Abraham Lincoln, because he's the one with the brilliant comment, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And right now we are a house divided against ourselves. And as I was writing, and that was part of the inspiration for the title, Beyond the Great Divide, that we have to put our house back together. We can't be Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals who dislike each other. We might disagree, but we can't do that. And I had studied, as you indicate, a lot of history. And one of the things, when you read history, some of the worst defeats and worst disasters are when the people in charge don't get along and act independently. And you find that in history over and over again. As I say in the book, that afternoon when Mayor Giuliani finally got out from under where his command center had been destroyed and we were talking on the phone, the most important decision I made in 12 years is that afternoon he set up a temporary command center with all its commissioners at a building downtown. And I thought for a minute and I said, I'll be right down. And I brought all my key commissioners and officials. And from the afternoon of September 11th for literally months Thereafter, we were all in the same room at the same table, the city on one side, the state officials on the other side. Later on, when FEMA came in, they were at the end of the table. So we never missed a beat. We had a coordinated response that was seamless among the city, state, and federal officials. And you compare that to Hurricane Katrina and historically some of the tragedies that occurred when there was either dislike or disunity among the leaders at that time. And I learned from that and said, that's not going to happen here. We're not going to miss a beat. We owe it to New York and the American people to respond seamlessly. And and we did. And I, and I am proud of that. It's something that too often is not the case. So I tell that story in the book and a lot of others as well. And with the goal, very simple, Dean, the goal is very simple here. And that is for Americans to understand we have a common destiny. And there are solutions to the seemingly intractable issues that paralyze Washington today if we'd only put aside some of the extremist ideology, particularly now from the left and the Democratic Party, and look at what the American people want and not what's, what the extremists or the media want. I actually offer some of those solutions in the book and hope that some people pick it up and actually try to encourage our political leaders to solve problems and not use them as political election campaign benefit. It's a tough message, and I think that as voters, we're the ones who have to demand it because it's those hard things, they like to call them red meat in politics, that get you donations. It's dividing people, right? Dan, and I, I apologize for interrupting you, but what you're saying is just so important. And you mentioned earlier how the big thing now is to write a political book. And those political books are all how this politician is awful or Democrats are criminals or Republicans are racists or something. And those are the best sellers because they appeal to the red meat, rabid followers. And, you know, you sell 25,000 books, you've got a bestseller. And so you write this partisan polemic or this divisive treatise and they sell lots of books because the people who are rabidly on your side just eat them up. 
but you try to offer solutions and create a more nuanced approach. And I'm a conservative. I'm a Republican. I'm conservative. I get hammered in New York about that all the time. But I'm also one who understands that the role of government is to solve problems. And sadly, we're not doing enough of that. You have a moment in the book, for instance, when Elliot Spitzer comes into your command center, I guess it is, and he's covered in in not just the debris of ground zero, not just the dust, but these are human beings who have been turned to dust that are, that are on him at the time, the attorney general of the state, and you embrace him. And this guy's a Democrat. We know about his fall and his scandal, but there's no mention of that in that moment in hindsight or what have you. No mention of his politics, just that here's a fellow New Yorker and a human being who has been there. You could see on his face, you say, the horrors that he saw at Ground Zero. Something that Lincoln did so often was tell those stories and not respond to his enemies and have those great quips. And maybe it's something about being a tall fellow. You're a tall fellow as well as Lincoln was. And uh, giving people those messages and saying, when they call him two-faced, he says, well, if I had another face, do you think I would wear this one? And disarming people with just humor and not getting angry at them. You chose Lincoln's speech, his Gettysburg Address, for that first commemoration. And at the time, I will confess to you, I didn't understand the choice. It wasn't the middle of a civil war. I didn't see the divisions that you were seeing from the inside, maybe just coming on the horizon with the Iraq war. And then later with Obamacare. These are two big things that you mentioned in Beyond the Great Divide. Why choose that speech from our civil war rather than, say, something from Theodore Roosevelt, who faced terrorism in the form of anarchists back in his day? Well, I think when you look at American history... And one of the things I will never forgive President Obama for is that the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg occurred while he was president, and there was virtually no commemoration. That battle was really the decisive point as to whether or not the United States would continue to exist as a union. It was the point where our existence, apart from the revolution, our existence was threatened in a way that it's never been threatened before or since. And his words after that were, to me, just so inspiring about the cause, you know, standing up for our one nation so that this nation created, uh, well, I actually know it when I start from the beginning of it. And it's so emotional and moving. And it just inspired me. And I think to this day inspires people who read it and listen to it, that in our nation's darkest days, we were not going to give up hope and we were going to make sure that this nation of the people, by the people and for the people was going to continue and in fact thrive. And now we again face a division, probably the worst since the Civil War, since that dark day. And it's our obligation to make sure that this nation continues to survive and to thrive, as you said, as President Reagan said, our, the last best hope. And I'm confident that it will, but we have to get beyond the horrible divisiveness of our political class, of our academic leaders, and of the media, and look to actually do what's right for the American people. And that's what I try to stress in the book. And it's one reason that in Beyond the Great Divide, you choose many aspirational chapter titles from all of these high-minded statements that our leaders have made that make us nod our head and make us stand a little taller as Americans, but also as human beings. Things like a house divided against itself cannot stand, which you mentioned. You think of that now looking at our current state of politics. You have a quote, being a politician is a poor profession, but being a public servant, a noble one. 
How did you go about choosing those quotes to further your book's mission to recapture that neighborhood spirit of 9-11? Well, Dean, you're right. That was the purpose. You know, look at the difference between a politician and a statesman. Look at the difference between a house divided and one with a sense of common purpose. And, and after September 11th, we had that sense of common purpose. We were all Americans. And my goal, my fondest goal is that we reclaim that and have, again, that sense that we're all in this together with a common destiny. So that was the, the source for, for those quotes that were consistent with that theme, which I think is just so important. And, you know, there are real enemies out there. You know, yes. communist China is no longer uh, an economic threat. It, it becomes every day a, a greater military strategic existential threat. And there are others out there. The Iranian regime still would do anything in its power to try to damage as many Americans and hurt America as much as possible if they ever get the chance. And also in the positive sense, we have so many great things that are within the grasp of being achieved over the next not just decades, but the next months and years when we work together to achieve those things. The future is unlimited. When on the other hand, we stand around and shoot at each other, the future looks rather bleak. So there's no reason for us to not set aside the seemingly important things that really in the end aren't that consequential and focus on working together for a common future. So I know I'm being a little redundant here, but it's the theme of the book. And I think it has to be the theme of America. Certainly, it's not going to be for the next 70 or 80 days, however many days it is till the election. But it should be once the election is over as to how we can come together and thrive as a country and as a people. You mentioned threats from other nations like China and like the former Soviet Union was. You could see when you look back that there was a general handing off of our foreign policy goals. Whereas you talk about the Iraq war, you call it the worst foreign policy decision in recent American history, but you also lament President Obama's decision to completely withdraw from the country, which opened the way for ISIS. To me, as I read that in Beyond the Great Divide, I thought phrases like politics stops at the water's edge seems as ancient today as Tippecanoe and Tyler II, which is from the 1840 election. It's something that we've just blown away and decided, well, we give up on that. And it doesn't mean we don't debate foreign policy. President Bush did go to Congress for that Iraq war vote. You talk about it in the book, sending Colin Powell down there, then not finding that the facts on the ground backed up the evidence from the intelligence agencies that he had. But we did have a consistent goal to survive the Soviet threat. And whether you were passing off from Gerald Ford to Jimmy Carter or from Eisenhower to JFK. All these goals were the same, at least in the overarching way. How you decided to do it, whether you were going to have detente or whether you were going to have peace through strength, we were going to keep our country. Today, we don't really have that. And so we are very much, in my view, like we were on 9-10 of 2001, where we feel Eh, we're we're safe. We're fat. We're happy. Well, I'll speak for myself. I, I could lose a few pounds, but we don't we don't see those threats from the outside. We just expect the world will always be here. We'll always be able to speak our mind. We'll always have freedom. We'll always have prosperity. And it's of course historically not the case. This is the exception to the rule when you live in a free Western society. So that really struck me here throughout your book and as you're talking about it. 
the word neighborhood. There's a reason that Fred Rogers had that. Yeah, there's a reason neighborhood is so important. Sesame Street, neighborhood. It's one of the first things we learn how important your neighbors are and not how important your party is. I wonder how do we get that neighborhood to focus on these facts in your book that, hey, this is 9-10 every day in our lives and there are threats out there and they're coming for all of us. They're coming for you, they're coming for people in the other party who've been governor, they're coming for everybody in Congress. They were they were aiming that plane at probably the Capitol or the White House, right? They weren't aiming it at the RNC or DNC headquarters. So how do we get people to focus on that neighborhood threat? You know, it comes down to leadership in my view at every level, not just the president, but even at the local level when you're running for office, if you're demonizing your opponents, then you're looking to divide us. You can win a political race, but you can't win the future if it's based on distrust and dislike of the other side. It has to be something where you actually offer solutions and then actually achieve those solutions. And I use the word neighborhood because when you think of your neighborhood, you know, it doesn't matter if your neighbor's house is painted a different color or if they drive a different type of car, you still understand that you're in it together and if they need something, you're gonna help them. If you need something, they're gonna help you. And it's not that way now. You know, I listen with absolute despair, you know, Hillary Clinton saying, under no circumstances should Joe Biden ever concede. And what is she saying? She's saying to not trust the American electoral process, to not trust the outcome of the American people, to have a perpetual dispute over the outcome of an election, even before it's held. And that's something third world-like, coming from a former Secretary of State and someone who was very close to be President of the United States. And, you know, yes, we face external threats, but I forget this historian, you, Dean, you probably know better than I, who said that America's not going to lose our freedom from without, we're going to lose it from our enemies within. And when you look at the rise of totalitarianism on the left in this country, and I say that explicitly. When you look at Antifa, which are radical, violent anarchists who remind me of the street gangs in Germany in the 30s trying to do one thing, and that is intimidate people with a different viewpoint and intimidate our society. We have to uphold the rule of law. And I fear that there are many now on the left in this country, a small minority to be sure, but those who are amplified by intolerance and the basic shouting down of conservative thinkers on campuses and the same thing in the media, that our freedom, yes, we face China and Iran and other external threats, but we face an internal threat to our ability to be able to express our viewpoints freely. That to me is the greatest threat right now to our freedom. And we have to stand up to that and marginalize that, I think. That remark that you mentioned about us not being conquered from the outside, it often shows up as a cobbled together quote, not exactly what Abraham Lincoln said. That was his Lyceum address in 1838, where he talks about all the armies of the world together couldn't take a drink from the Ohio River if we made up our minds to stop them. But it could happen if we fall from within. And he's even back then seeing the threats of the Civil War. You mentioned Reagan and Lincoln, the current president, Donald Trump. Something that Trump doesn't do that Reagan did is Reagan so often talked about, I used to be a Democrat. Things about the party leaving me, I didn't leave it. He used the song, Happy Days Are Here Again, and people of a certain age said, well, wait a minute, that was FDR's song. You can't play that at a Republican convention. And he said, heck, yes, I can. We don't hear about that. We don't hear about things like it was Bernie Sanders primary voters switching who ended up giving 
Donald Trump the majority in several states that he needed to become president, to win the Electoral College. I think it's three or four states, Michigan, the states like this, where you wouldn't expect them to switch, but they did. Maybe that's why he doesn't talk about it currently, because we have this divided idea. You don't want to think somebody used to be a Democrat. Oh, my gosh. Or, you know, somebody used to be a Republican, as he said. But it really is just caring about the color of their houses, because when people look at that map from the Middle East, they don't even see the difference between Canada and America. And this is the thing that I think we forget. We just expect we're going to go live our lives. It's not the case. And this great divide between us is really a problem because we need to present a united front. doesn't mean we don't disagree and debate. That's key to democracy. But we don't have to say whatever you say is definitely bad. This isn't sports. That's right. It's not sports. It's, it's serious business that affects every one of our lives. And certainly when it comes to our external projection of strength and our values, we do have to stand together. And too often that is just not the case these days. It's very troubling to me. You know, if I were to go speak on a college campus today, I might not be allowed to speak. Or in all likelihood, if I were allowed to speak, would have protesters screaming and yelling, trying to prevent me from being heard. And we see this constantly now. And it starts on the academic campuses, and then it ends up on the streets of Portland, where you can be assaulted and killed because your political views are different from those radicals in the street. I really fear when you lose respect for the rule of law that you lose your freedom. I mean, our Constitution is not just a piece of paper. Uh, You look at the Soviet Union's Constitution, and it has all these civil rights guarantees that go beyond our Constitution. But they were a joke because people disrespected it and the rule of law. And I fear that we're starting to see that from the left and in academia today, where they're just words. And they're not just words. They're the basis for our freedom. And, you know, um, I'm critical of both parties. I'm critical of people from both parties in the book, because I think if you want to get beyond the great divide, you have to do that. But ultimately, I think when you see this rising left, intolerant, really dangerous left within the Democratic Party, I think it becomes more imperative that those of us who don't share those views, and I don't mean just conservatives and Republicans, but I mean a great many Democrats and liberals who fear this the growing intolerance to the left of, of their party, that unless we're prepared on both sides to reach out to create that consensus that the, the strength of those really violent, totalitarian-minded people are going to be successful in, in shouting down people who have a different viewpoint. So these are scary times, domestically as well as uh, globally, and it requires those of us who care, whether we're on the conservative right side of the spectrum or more liberal and Democrat, to stand up to these forces. And I don't see that happening enough, and that to me is truly sad. Let's have a little of the William F. Buckley. I often think of Buckley going and purging the John Birch Society and the real extreme right-wing people out of the party. And also you want to stick people on other people, right? Uh, You want to say, oh, hey, this person is right-wing if you're left-wing. You want to tag them as that. And then if you're left-wing, you want to say they're right-wing. We never do what they say in sports and other sports analogies point the thumb, not the finger. It's easy to pick on other people and get your retweets and stuff, but maybe I need to get my own house in order. And media plays a role in it as well. When I worked in cable news, 
I used to describe it as staging a car wreck every segment to play to the rubberneckers. If it bleeds, it leads is one thing, but now people are practically stabbing each other to get a little bit of blood so we can get headlines. And at the time, my biggest news story for as far as something controversial was Kosovo. And I'll tell you, Governor, I got so tired of writing terrifying intros and leads and segments and questions about we might have to put boots on the ground. We might, oh my God, we might have to send soldiers. President Clinton was president at the time. And even though I supported Bob Dole and I I voted for Senator Dole, I still didn't want to see the president of the United States have his arms tied because that kind of weakness really does project an invite. It's it's a big light that says, hey, America is weak. And that is, in fact, the lesson Osama bin Laden took from many of the things like Black Hawk Down. America's a paper tiger. I didn't want our president hamstrung and people to think, well, wow, look how terrified the Americans are of sending in a single soldier, risking a single soldier. I just got tired of terrifying people about that. So what do you think the message is for news consumers out there and also news producers When they're writing those segments, what can they get out of Beyond the Great Divide as they watch cable news or maybe some kind of news that they think is a little bit more balanced, not just preaching to the choir? Well, balanced, I think, Dean, is the right word. One of the things we have to keep in mind is that almost always there are two sides to every story. And sadly, you don't get those two sides anymore. You turn on, I actually periodically try to watch CNN just to see what they're saying. And I was watching it last night. And, you know, my God, you just, you're living in a different planet. When you listen to it, it's, the truth is all one-sided and it doesn't, their truth doesn't have, happens not to be one that I agree with. And, you know, that's not to say that I'm right, but at least they should pay lip service to having both sides represented because, as you see in all the polling, the American people are largely split down the middle when it comes to politics, which side they're going to vote this fall. But yet on the media, you only hear one side. And I just sit around wondering where I can hear the news. I don't want to be told this happened and because of that, you should think X. I want to be told this happened. And then I'm smart enough, I think, to figure out the the consequence of what I should think about that. But so much of our media and academia have become ideological. One of the things I talk about in the book is how it's fine to have an ideology, I'm a conservative, but there's a difference between someone who has an ideology and an ideologue who believes that they're always right and the solution always is consistent with their ideology. When you think that way, you give up reality. America is a success because we're a pragmatic country. You have a problem, you solve the problem. You don't say, okay, we have this problem, what can I do to fit the solution from my ideology into this problem? You just solve it. And that's pragmatic, and that's what we need in Washington. That's what we need in our politics, and we don't see that pragmatism. You know, I talk about immigration, and I know it's a controversial issue, and you say the wrong thing, and you're going to be challenged. But let me tell you my view on that. It's not a difficult thing to solve. Marginalize the extremes. There are those who say we're going to put 12 million people here illegally on railroad cars or something and send them somewhere, That's never going to happen. And there are those who say that we have to have open borders. We have to let anyone who wants to come here just come here willy-nilly. And if they break the law, we're going to have sanctuaries where the law doesn't apply to them. That the American people don't want either. And that would be a way to destroy our country. But there are solutions like telling the people who are here illegally, 
but who have obeyed the law since they got here, that you broke the law. We are a country of the rule of laws. You're going to pay a consequence. You're going to have to perform, come forward, acknowledge you broke the law, perform community service to help make your community a better place. And at the end, you can have legalized status, not a path to citizenship. You're not going to jump the line, but you'll be able to come out from under the shadows and live here legally. And then at the same time, we have to say, if we're going to do that, we have to have complete control of our borders so that we're not creating an incentive for others to come here illegally because we are a nation of laws. So I think an overwhelming majority of the American people would look at something like that and say, yeah, that works. You know, it's an imperfect solution, but it makes our country a better place and it makes our lives better. But you float that in the political toxic environment in Washington today and, oh, my God, you're for amnesty for illegals. No, there would be a penalty. Or no, you're a bigot who won't provide a path to citizenship to immigrants here. No, I'm trying to uphold the rule of law. So what we have to do is marginalize the extremes, marginalize the ideologues, and impose the solutions the American people know are right for the country. And sadly, that just isn't happening. Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, the little flower, Republican mayor of New York City during World War II, said there's no Democratic or Republican way of cleaning the streets. These are all divisive issues, but that's what our country is designed, originally was designed to work these things through without violence and also have a government that is so complex, has so many checks and balances that a dictator would have an impossible time trying to run it. We should focus on using the levers that we were given to accomplish these things. For instance, you mentioned immigration. Because I went through a fiancé visa with my wife to bring her here from Canada, I feel like I have an inside perspective on that. You go there at 3 a.m., go to Newark or wherever your nearest port of entry is, your ICE office. There are people who start lining up at 2.45 in the morning. There's one little guy, I used to say to him, he looked like Spike Lee. He would show up every day at about 2.45, and he would get the first spot in the line, and he would sell it for 20 bucks or whatever anyone offered him. And then as those small hours go, in Newark, again, in the middle of the early morning, you have a line of people who assemble from all over the world. Some of them don't speak English. Some of them never will be able to afford that lawyer that's going to help them. But they're on that line to do it the right way, to follow the laws. Because as some of them said to me, you know, we came here to follow the law because in our countries it's lawless. I always feel like politicians, whoever they are, at least go to those people in line and say, hey, we want to make the case to you why we need to let some people in ahead of you. Because nobody on that line cuts line. You know, John McCain is a Republican. Hillary Clinton's a Democrat. They say, well, they're, they're children of God or you're racist. Well, we're all children of God if you believe that. That doesn't mean you give up on the rule of law. We, we have rules for a reason. And man, they are pains. And I would love to see them streamlined because my wife and I, we do speak the language. We do have the means if we have to hire a lawyer. But I know a lot of those people don't. And I never hear anybody go and make that case. And that's something that Ronald Reagan did do in Simpson-Mazzoli. Here he worked with a Democratic Congress to pass that bill to give amnesty to people who were here. But in exchange for what you're talking about, saying we're not going to create an incentive and abolish the borders. And in Beyond the Great Divide, you realize after 9-11, yes, everybody agreed we have to close down the airspace. We have to close the borders. We have to know who's getting here. We do now with COVID-19. But now that this great divide has widened, we don't see that 9-11 neighborhood spirit anymore where we realize you want to know who's driving down your streets. You want to know if somebody moving in doesn't have good intentions. And I like that that's what you show us here in Beyond the Great Divide is 
hey, realize it's your neighborhood first and we're all your neighbors. And I, I don't know how we get back to that other than maybe reading your book. <laughs> it's a naked plug for it. But just thinking about what really matters in life. And maybe COVID-19 is a little bit like that, where we are recognizing what's important again. You know, the, the sad thing is we're so polarized that even the COVID-19 response, it seems that, you know, whether or not you're reopening or shutting things down is based on politics. The analysis, you know, oh, my God, isn't what happening in Florida is awful because they're too open is political. You know, the question of treatment or a vaccine becomes political. And this just points out the hideous nature of the divisive politics and the divisive media that dominates us culturally today. I mean, if ever since September 11th, there was something that should have brought us together and said, okay, we're going to look at this rationally. What works? What doesn't work? What can we do better? It just isn't the case. Even with something as catastrophic as this, you know, we are such a strong country and we are such a strong people that we're getting beyond this. And I'm very hopeful that we have this new testing, 15-minute testing protocol now, and hopefully this fall we'll have a vaccine and this will be behind us. But it should be a lesson as to how not to do things, that you have to communicate, you have to let science determine the best course. And we're just so, so not we, not the American people, but our leadership and what you see in the media is just so divisive that it's hard for the American people to understand what is right and what is being argued for a political purpose. You know, I used to read, I, I don't mean to be critical of one particular outlet, but I used to read the New York Times diligently. I no longer can read it. Every single front page article has a political agenda. It's not aimed at informing the American people of the, the news of the moment. It's aimed at tilting that news towards a political goal. And we have to get beyond that. It's not what the American people want. And one of the points I make in Beyond the Great Divide is that our political leadership is not the same as their views are not the same as what the American people are thinking. The American people know there are solutions and want those solutions. Too often our political leadership want problems that they can point to and blame the other side in an election. And this has just got to stop. And, and ultimately it comes down to leadership. It comes down to people saying, enough with this. We cannot tolerate this anymore. We need to work together as Americans, you know, and set aside the petty differences, not the big debates over important issues, but the petty differences that now just seem to divide us in a way that prevents us from even having a civil conversation. You're enjoying my conversation with the 53rd governor of New York State, three-termer George Pataki. He's here to discuss his book, Beyond the Great Divide, How a Nation Became a Neighborhood. For more, you can visit georgepatakicenter.com and you can find him at Governor Pataki on Twitter. David Petrusha, who I interviewed about his books, TR's Last War, 1920, The Year of Six Presidents, and Rothstein, served as a public information officer in your administration. And when I asked him to reflect on Beyond the Great Divide, he said one thing that always intrigued him about you is that each step along the way, mayor, assemblyman, senator, governor, you got there by knocking off an incumbent. And that's not something that's easy to do even once, he pointed out. Governor, to achieve those upsets, you had to get voters to switch. You had to get them to change their mind about the, the guy they'd voted for last time and to vote for you. 
How do you apply those skills after 9-11, and how can they help reassemble our national neighborhood today? Well, well, he's right that I, I did run against an incumbent every time I ran for a different office. And it was for the same reason. It was basically frustration that people love having a political title. But the question is, do they want to do the job and are they doing the job in the right way? And that's what I would always ask myself. I didn't feel compelled to run unless the person who held the office just wasn't doing, in my view, the right thing for the people they were representing. And that's the case you have to make. You know, we can do better than this. Yes, we have this current structure, but we can do better. And then point out how we can do better. And now that's not the case. It's more like, how can we burn down the existing structure and rebuild it? And I don't mean to, I fear, Dean, that I might be coming across as pessimistic here, and I'm really not. I'm a great believer, as I say probably too often in the book, I'm an optimist who believes in America and believes in the people and the future of this country. But we have to do better. It's as simple as that. And when you have people in power who aren't doing the job, that doesn't mean the alternative is always a better choice. You have to look and see if, in fact, they can do better. You know, what America has always been about is not being satisfied. You know, we always had that next frontier to conquer. We always had that next technology to develop, whether it was the frontier of the West or creating a country from sea to shining sea or going into outer space or now having unlimited clean energy uh, or, or medicine that's going to allow us to continue to expand healthy lifespans enormously. All these things are things that America is great about. America and Americans are great about dreaming big and then working hard practically to accomplish those dreams. I don't see that in Washington today. I don't see that in our media today. I don't see the inspiration, you know, that you look back and as a historian, Dean, you remember Ronald Reagan's shining city on a hill. What he was basically saying is that, yeah, America's great, but we can make this country even greater and make it that shining city on a hill. And today, it's more like, forget about making something that is already a wonderful place better. It's tearing it down. And I just have always rejected that. You change not by tearing down the existing order, but by improving and building a better order. And I fear in our politics today, particularly among those on the far left, it's not about building a better future. It's about tearing down a system that, for all its imperfections, has been the best the world has ever seen, in my view. And this kind of fanaticism that we see across the spectrum, it's something you write about in Beyond the Great Divide. You say, for many, politics has replaced religion. And that really struck home with me. I think that's why we see so much politics, for example, at funerals now. We used to see a coming together of people when somebody passed away. And I think of that first Thanksgiving after 9-11, we were all so grateful just to be alive. We were grateful for the NYPD and the Fire Department of New York and the first responders for America, for our leaders such as yourself, that you were trying to lead us through it. It was such a time of unity. And now, in the 20 years since, it's a tradition for political action groups to send out press releases encouraging people to get into fights over their turkey dinners and to argue with people and prepare yourself to attack. I think of hockey games again. I think of going to the FDNY NYPD annual charity hockey game they have. Right after 9-11, I went. And what a moving time. They lost players, guys who would have played on the team, who, of course, were lost in the towers. 
there, there was no partisanship there. there were, the rivalry was muted. They felt like they were on the same team, which, of course, they are, even though they're wearing different jerseys. And I mentioned to you that even when the New York Rangers played the Philadelphia Flyers, and it's hard to think of a rivalry in any sports that's more intense than that was back in the day, Flyers, the Broad Street Bullies, they would fight, they'd leave blood on the ice, speaking of blood on the ice, and yet those players stopped when President Bush had to make an address about 9-11, and they all watched that jumbotron, and all the fans were watching it, whatever side that they were on, tough Philadelphia fans who have a reputation, and New York Rangers fans will, will certainly hold their own. We were united then. And yet now we've we've let politics creep in to be that religion. And hey, that's how you get people to donate to campaigns, right? People donate to false churches all the time. And, you know, they donate to things like this. And so I don't know how we get around that today, especially since we live by this tyranny of the tweet. Now, one thing I already noticed about you speaking today and also reading The Great Divide is you often pause before speaking. That's something that I just really love because it's something I wish I did more. And it's something that my hero, William McKinley, who was Theodore Roosevelt's predecessor in the White House, did. Because he said, I learned that, you know, the temporary enjoyment I got out of blasting somebody and saying what I really thought, that that was always much more trouble than just holding my tongue. And this is why he was so successful. And you do that repeatedly. You do it when Mayor Giuliani floats, perhaps delaying the election. And you don't say what first pops into your head. You wrote, quote, the most successful leaders have inspired and unified. Nowadays, leaders divide. So if asked, what advice do you have for President Trump, for Vice President Biden, for their running mates to try to bridge that divide a little bit? Everyone's guts are going to get ripped up, as you said, for the next few months. And, you know, we're all going to be left exhausted. And by the end, they'll probably have very nice concession speeches, as they always do. You know, you know, Dean, I hope you're right about the nice concession speeches. But <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, when you listen to Hillary Clinton saying, do not concede under any circumstances, it makes me wonder if the seeds aren't being sown to, to really challenge the legitimacy of the outcome of an election. And that's just not right. So let me pause for a minute. No, I'm kidding about that. I am concerned that the next two and a half months or whatever it is, a little over two months, are going to be very divisive. I haven't seen, you know, rising above the fray. You mentioned Reagan, how he could always talk about his history as a Democrat and his appeal beyond the partisanship. And you just don't see that from either Biden or from Trump today. President Trump, to me, when he gets in his Twitter feuds, particularly when he got in the feuds during the COVID briefings with reporters, he has to remember he's the president of the United States. And these people are not worthy of a response, let alone getting involved in a negative dialogue with. You just ignore them. And sadly, there is no pause on the Twitter button, it seems, at the president's level. But on the other hand, you know, then you have Joe Biden, who in his great speech, finally condemning violence that has been going on in Democratic cities for, for over a month, can't find it to mention it in that speech, Antifa or radical leftists who are the ones who are actually attacking federal buildings and attacking police headquarters and attacking elected officials' homes. And you just wonder how, how he could be trapped in such a narrow-minded view or whether it's just political advisors telling him, you know, you can't attack leftist radicals who are engaging in this violence because it might affect your votes. And if that's the way you look at leading our country, it's kind of scary. You need a leadership that just says what's right for the American people. And 
You have to be aware of the political consequences. You want to win the election, but not at the expense of selling your soul out to extremists to engage in violence. As I said, I'm an optimist. I'm not optimistic about the, the nature of the rhetoric we're going to see over the next two months, but I am hopeful that once this election is over, people can say, okay, it's time. We have to stop the nonsense and understand that we're all in this together, that we are one nation, that a house divided against itself cannot stand, and let's give whoever is there the chance to succeed. We look at the world and we see things like the mayor. I mean, the mayor and the governor of this are of the same party as you were at the time. You were the, also a Republican, so was Mayor Giuliani, and you found a way to work together. Today I see things like Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, he's seeing people leave and he's saying, well, I don't care. I don't care. But I'm literally saying this. So other people will replace them. You face the challenge when you're governor of keeping American Express in the city because you can't just get somebody to replace American Express. That's the only American Express that there is. And if they'd left, you say you feared there would be a domino effect. You know, everyone's going to start fleeing the city. They would have given them the okay. Instead, we have a mayor who says, well, if people want to leave, we'll replace them. I think it's so damaging to the city. And also saying, well, I don't care about restaurants opening because apparently only rich people eat at restaurants. You have to be well-to-do to eat at a restaurant. It's a very optional activity, he said, which some people do a lot who have the resources and others can't do it all because they don't have the resources. Now, the inner Greek in me is so bugged by that because if it wasn't for restaurants, when my grandfathers came here from Greece... You know, one of them slept in the booth in exchange for sweeping the floors. That was his path to citizenship. His road to opportunity was the restaurant. He wasn't a rich man. He lost everything. He just escaped a genocide. He didn't have anything but the clothes on his back, maybe a couple souvlaki in his pocket. So I wonder what you would like to see today to these governors and these mayors who really are just playing to that base. You mentioned Vice President Biden. Now, he has tried at times to say, well, I, I work with Republicans. I like them. And, oh, my gosh, it was the, like the worst thing he could say in, in his party's primary. What are you doing working with working with Republicans? How dare you say you're friends with Republicans? We, we don't want to hear that out of you. I know maybe that's part of the reason you wrote Beyond the Great Divide. But what do you hope to see the governor and the mayor of New York, the state and city, do to follow the path to really a rapid rebound that you and Mayor Giuliani and President Bush followed after 9-11? Well, you know, the first thing I'd like to see is them talking. You know, it's just ridiculous where the mayor will say we're going to do one thing and the governor will say the exact opposite at a time of crisis in relationship to the COVID-19 spike that was horrible in New York. They couldn't even work together through that, you know, and it was just extremely discouraging. And now they're still at cross purposes. You know, the mayor's comments about restaurants, there are over 200,000 people who work in the restaurant industry in New York City. And, and the vast majority of them, uh, many of them are immigrants. Many of them, the vast majority are low income people working in the dish preparation and dishwashing and everything else. It's just the absurdity of the, of the class hatred from the left, and the mayor is essentially a Marxist, that, you know, well, because rich people can eat in restaurants more, we don't need indoor dining. Forget about the 200,000 people who are going to lose their jobs. It is just despicable. And, you know, I fear for the future of New York for the first time. And I know there is the Jerry Seinfeld debate with someone else, and New York always comes back, and New York will come back. But this is going to be the hardest for it to come back from because. You don't only have the economic shutdown, 
you have the homeless crisis of mentally ill homeless roaming the streets and threatening people. You have crime with changes in the laws in Albany, letting violent criminals out on the street time and time again and crime increasing enormously. You have the aftermath of COVID where people aren't going to want to ride the subways. And you have the new phenomena of working remotely where you don't have to be in an office. You don't have to be concentrated in one 65-story office building. Uh, you can work from home and maybe go into the office periodically if you have a meeting. So I think New York is facing enormous challenges, and I think it's facing it with the wrong leadership. And as you said with de Blasio saying, well, go ahead and leave. We'll find somebody else. 40% of New York's income taxes are paid by 1% of the population. And New York's taxes are way too high. Its economic climate is way too restrictive. And now its social climate with the homeless and the crime issues is becoming far worse. So those 1%, uh, too many of them already are in Florida or in Texas or other states with no state taxes. And without the right leadership, more of them are going to be there. You're not penalizing them. You're penalizing the people who are left behind who aren't going to have the government resources from their tax payments to provide the services that New York needs. So leadership matters. That's one of the points I try to make in the book. And you mentioned American Express and uh, American Express headquarters, world headquarters was right across the street from where the towers came down. Their offices were damaged. They couldn't be used. And their board wanted to flee lower Manhattan. And I worked with the leader, the head of American Express at the time, Ken Chenault. And Ken just simply said, I don't want the terrorists to win. I don't want to move. You have to guarantee me enough security for American Express that I can go to the board and say, we're going to stay there. I guaranteed the security. Ken Chenault went to the board and today American Express's headquarters is all rebuilt right across the street from ground zero. And it was one of the keys to preventing lower Manhattan becoming a ghost town after September 11th. So you have to solve problems. You have to have leadership that understands that it's not about your leftist ideology and let the rich uh, eat at home or, or high income earners move to Florida. It's about us as a society succeeding together. And that means working on behalf of everyone and seeing the big picture. Too often in Washington and certainly in New York today, the leadership missed the big picture and just see the political consequences to their own careers. And it's not about their career, it's about the American people. And that's what we always have to keep in mind. We have a few moments left, so I'd like to end where your book begins. And that's with a question on reclaiming the understanding that we are all in this together. Theodore Roosevelt warned against a boarding house nation. And I think of that often, where we have people with no attachment to it as a home. I think of that line, as I said, every morning in the small hours in Newark and in states and cities across the entire country, waiting in line to become Americans. They care about being part of that neighborhood. So make your pitch to readers as you did so successfully for votes when you won all those offices throughout your career. Why should listeners, wherever they are on the political spectrum, pick up Beyond the Great Divide to address this crisis of division to see what they can do maybe for next Thanksgiving? Maybe people should be passing your book around before they have the, the turkey and the cranberry sauce. Why do you want them to pick up the book? Well, well, thank you, Dean. And the reason I wrote it and why I'd like them to read it is, first of all, I talk about how we became so incredibly united in the face of the horrible attacks of September 11th. And I start out by 
telling a story about Charlie Rangel, a Democratic congressman from Harlem who was one of the most partisan people I ever worked with, a year after September 11th, standing up and thanking President Bush for his leadership and how that symbolized how we weren't Republicans or Democrats, black or white, young or old. We were Americans. We had been attacked and we were going to get through that together. And I tell some stories about that attitude that made our recovery after September 11th so strong. And then you look at today, and this is unsustainable. The fact that you can't talk to people in your own family if you disagree politically, the fact that you come to a different conclusion about an election means that they don't want to talk to you or they dislike you after decades of friendship is unsustainable. We cannot work as a society that way. Put aside the crazy ideology. Look at the problems our country faces today, and we can solve those problems with practical solutions that the vast majority of the American people support. And I outlined some of those solutions. So if you want to be angry at everybody else at the table who disagrees with you this Thanksgiving, just let's keep doing what you're doing. But if you want to be more open-minded, more tolerant, more willing to listen to people and to actually try to come to common ground, which is the only way we're going to solve problems, then I'd urge you to read this book. Because when I look at our future, this is the most exciting time in American history. We are going to have, within a matter of years, unlimited clean energy. We're going to have medical protocols and preventive devices and treatments where we'll look back at Alzheimer's as something that is a thing of the past. We're going to have more opportunity for economic growth in this country as we develop new technologies and resources. Be optimistic, not pessimistic. Look for solutions, not political advantage. And understand that for all our passion and for all our commitment to the things we believe in, maybe, just maybe, there's some value on the other side and in listening to someone who thinks differently. So that's what I try to say. I point out uh, Lower Manhattan that had been a symbol of the horrors of the attacks on September 11th is now really a symbol of how we can come back stronger than before those attacks when we work together. And I'm confident that we as a country can come back stronger from this great divide, and again, understand that we're all part of one neighborhood of one America. Well, Governor George E. Pataki, author of Beyond the Great Divide, I really hope listeners will pick up the book, maybe consider gifting a copy to somebody who's across that great divide. Toss them a copy of the book across the nation's ideological chasm. This book, Beyond the Great Divide, really helps bind up our nation's wounds, makes you feel better, makes you realize, hey, I'm not going to be a a tool of people who are just playing to my worst angels. I'm just going to do what I can to be better, listen to people, be tolerant. I thank you so much for your service in the aftermath of 9-11 and for sharing the benefit of your experiences on that day to help us build that more perfect union in 2020. Uh, Well, thank you, Dean. It's a great honor being on with you for your show and uh, continued success and keep fighting. I appreciate your leadership very much here. Thank you. Thank you, sir, so much. I appreciate your time. No words cried out so fully from the broken heart of our nation as those of a poem called The Names. It was written by the United States Poet Laureate, Billy Collins. He wrote it a year after the attacks and dedicated it simply to those who died and to their survivors. Its last verse reads as follows. 
names etched on the head of a pin, one name spanning a bridge, another undergoing a tunnel, a blue name needled into the skin, names of citizens, mothers, and fathers, the bright-eyed daughter, the quick son, alphabet of names in a green field, names in the small tracks of birds, names lifted from a hat or balanced on the tip of the tongue, names wheeled in the dim warehouse of memory. So many names, there is barely room on the walls of the heart. That's Governor Pataki on the 10th commemoration of the 9-11 attacks in 2011. Again, the book is Beyond the Great Divide, How a Nation Became a Neighborhood. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. But however you get the book, I hope you'll pick up a copy. It's really a fair-minded look, and I found Governor Pataki's voice so refreshing. Let's look at people as neighbors again. I thank Governor Pataki for joining me and for reflecting on one of the darkest days in American history, but with that optimistic eye on letting the lessons we learned light our way to a brighter future. It's not easy to look back on my own memories of 9-11, and I watched the towers burn and smelled the smoke from across the Hudson River. Governor Pataki was right there. He lost friends, people he worked with, people he knew. The fact that he did dig back into those often painful memories, looking for things to inspire, shows he had an obligation to history and America. And it'll make the country so much better if we follow some of those lessons. Beyond the Great Divide isn't full of finger-wagging. Heck, Governor Pataki even quotes the fictional President Camacho, played by Terry Crews in the film Idiocracy. That's a book with some broad scope when you have 9-11 and idiocracy between two covers. Visit georgepatakicenter.com for more or find our guest at Governor Pataki on Twitter. You can also find his co-author, Trey Raydell, at Trey Raydell on Twitter as well. As with their book, their Twitter feeds are really a nice tonic in these divided times. You can find me on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or facebook.com slash historyauthor. And you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. That's it for this gubernatorial installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. I can hear you! Yeah. <laughs>